Um, So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, um, verse from verse 1 to 13, sorry, 1 to 13, right. Let me read. So this is Paul writing to the church. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. Paul's not with the Thessalonians. He's heard about them. He's heard about their troubles, and he's anxious. So, he says, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So there's two things that strike us immediately as you read this passage. First of all, it's an incredibly heartfelt passage, isn't it? Almost embarrassingly so. Paul, earlier in the letter, describes himself as like a mother nurturing children. That's how he feels towards them. The second thing is the singularity of his focus. Paul knows they're struggling in several ways, but he's looking for one thing. He's looking for one thing. So he's like a mother, actually, who rings up to find about the child who's away, and she just wants to know whether, I don't know, whether they're eating their greens. They just, she just wants to know one thing, and then she can rest in bed at night. Paul just wants to know one thing, and he wants to know about their faith. And he's looking for three things in their faith. Three things. He's looking for a faith that is, A, rooted in reality, also stands firm in the storm, and nourishes a life of love and beauty. There are points. He's looking for a faith that is rooted in reality, stands firm in the storm, and nourishes a life of love and beauty. So, first of all, he's looking for a faith rooted in reality. The faith Paul is looking for and finds in the Thessalonians is one that is rooted, that, is, can, that can kind of handle life as it really is, and is able to see what is really real about the situation. A faith that is rooted in reality. So it can handle life as it really is. Paul says, 
um, in verse 2 of chapter 3. We sent Timothy um, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. So Paul says these things are trials. And there's a sense in which suffering and affliction and pain and life going wrong is always a test. It's always a test whatever you believe. It's always a test of your view of the world, the thing you're basing your life on. And if the thing you're basing your life on can't cope with this, then it's failed, hasn't it? Because suffering is such a prevalent, such a kind of a basic part of what life is like. Your worldview needs to be able to cope with this. And I just want us to note, first of all, that our kind of secular worldview can't cope with this. It fails this test. I was reading a book recently by um, a guy called Francis Spufford. It's called Unapologetic. It's a, quite, it's a really good book. I'm going to read you a section. And he comments on the atheist bus campaign that um, they had. It is a bus campaign that says, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. You might have seen that. There's probably no God, stop worrying and enjoy your life. And this is what he says about it. He says, basically, this is your chance to enjoy your life here and now. And if you don't, you fail. That's it. That's, this is it. This is all there is to it. That's what secular means. Secular means now. So if you don't enjoy your life now, if you don't live a life of bliss and enjoyment, you've missed your chance. So he says, suppose as the atheist bus goes by that you are the 50-something woman with the Tesco bags trudging home to find out whether your dementing lover has smeared the walls of the flat with her own excrement again. Yesterday when she did it, you hit her and she mewled to her face was a mess of tears and mucus which you also had to clean up. The only thing that would ease the weight of your heart would be to tell the funniest, sharpest-tongued person you know about it. But that person no longer inhabits the creature who will meet you when you unlock the door. Or suppose you're that boy in the wheelchair, the one with the spasming corkscrew limbs and the funny-looking head. You've never been able to talk, but one of your hands has been enough under your control to tap out messages. Now the electrical storm in your nervous system is spreading there too, and your fingers tap more errors than readable words. Soon, your narrow channel to the world will close altogether, and you'll be left all alone in the hulk of your body. Or suppose you're that skanky-looking woman in the doorway, the one who, with the rat's nest of dreadlocks. Two days ago, you, were sk- you skedaddled from rehab. The first couple of hits were great. Your tolerance had gone right down. Over two weeks of abstinence and square meals and the rush of bliss was the way it used to be when you began. But now you're back in the grind and the news is trickling through that you've messed up big time. Always before you've had this story you tell yourself about getting clean but now you see it isn't true. Now you know you haven't the strength. So when the atheist bus comes by and tells you that there's probably no God so you should stop worrying and enjoy your life The slogan is not just bitterly inappropriate in mood. What it means, if it's true, is that anyone who isn't enjoying themselves is entirely on their own. It amounts to a denial of hope or consolation on any but the most chirpy, squeaky, bubblegummy reading of the human situation. St. Augustine called this kind of thing cruel optimism. 1,500 years later, it's still cruel. So, Paul looks 
and he finds a faith that has survived terrible suffering. And he knows this is a faith that's rooted in reality. A faith that can kind of fit suffering into it. That's the first thing he's looking for. But I suppose the response to this will be, well, I suppose if you can believe this stuff and you get some kind of consolation from it, that's great for you. But I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. But of course, the charge here is basically that to have faith is to kind of lie to yourself to make yourself feel better about the world. But what I want us to see is that this is exactly the opposite of what Paul says faith is. Faith, according to Paul, is not about lying to yourself. It's the opposite. It's about telling yourself the truth so you don't believe the lies. In other words, faith is about using your reason. Faith is about holding on with all the strength of your being to what you know to be real, to what you know to be true. So, for example, when Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight, what does he mean there? He doesn't say we walk by faith, not by reason. He doesn't say we walk by faith, not by thinking. He says we walk by faith, not by sight. So, let me try and give you an illustration. You go to the doctors, and the doctor says you need surgery. It's not an emergency, but it's probably the wisest course of action. What do you do? If you're going to take surgery, you need faith, don't you, in that situation. You need faith in the doctor that what he's saying is kind of right. You need faith in the surgeon that he's going to be able to look after you properly. It's a scary thing to do, but the doctor says you need it, therefore you need to have faith. How do you get that faith? How do you get that faith? Do you kind of close your eyes and go, faith, 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 faith? (laughs) No, you don't do that. You you go and find out more information, don't you? You get a second opinion. You maybe find a doctor you know, like James or Tony. You go and say, what do you think? Do you think this is a good idea? Maybe you talk to people who've had the operation before. You say, how was it for you? Was it worth it? Do you think it's improved your life? You find more information. You look for evidence. And you're doing that because you want to have faith. You need that evidence in order to have faith, in order to do this operation. You don't stick your fingers in your ears. You don't say, don't tell me about it. I just want to do it. I don't want to know about the side effects. I don't want to know about whether it's going to hurt. I just want to do it. No one does that. You want to find out information so that you have something to base your faith on. So you're in... Um, you go to the hospital that day and you lie down in bed and you're waiting for the surgeon to come in and you hear the kind of surgeon through the door and the squeak of the trolley and the rattle of the scalpels. (laughs) And suddenly you sit up and you say, right, that's it, I'm out of here. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'll come back next week. I'll come back next week. What's happened? You've been unsettled. You've lost your faith. Is that because you've kind of encountered more information, more evidence that makes your faith untenable? No. It's not that, actually. You've lost your faith because you've stopped thinking and you're reacting. You're saying, this is going to be painful. I'm going to be, I'm going, to be going under general anesthetic. I'm not going to be in control here. You're not thinking anymore. You're reacting. You should be saying, look, I need to have this operation. I know it's the right course of action, even though it's scary I've got to do this. 
So you get faith by thinking, and when you lose your faith, it's because you stop thinking. So when Paul says you walk by faith, not by sight, he's saying you walk by what you know. You kind of root yourself in what you know, in the truth. And when your feelings and your moods and your fears start welling up, you tell them where to go. That's what faith is. You don't go by how things appear, how things seem to you at this moment. You go by what you know is real, what you know is true. Faith is not the absence of thinking. There's a sense in which faith is the kind of highest form, the most consistent form of thinking. Faith is about rooting yourself in the truth, and you do it by thinking. So Paul says, don't be unsettled by these trials. You knew this was going to be hard. You've got to think about this. Remember Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Tim Keller says, doubt is about listening to your heart. Faith is about talking to it. Doubt is about listening to your heart. Faith is about talking to it. That's what the psalmist is doing. Why are you downcast in my soul? Put your hope in God. So, faith is not opposed to thinking. It's about clinging with all your might to reality. In fact, many of us as Christians will know that it wasn't really until you became a Christian that you started thinking in this way. Before you'd kind of react to situations, you'd do things in a way where you'd say, um, what? you'd say, why do you do this? You'd say, well, that's what I always do. I do it because I'm English. I do it because um, I've just been brought up this way. It's just what I do. But when you become a Christian, you say to yourself, wait a minute, I now have a kind of standard of truth, a standard of what's good and wise that I didn't have before. So I can't just go by my actions. I can't just do what I've always done. I need to think about this. I need to live by faith. So faith is rooted in reality. Faith also stands firm in the storm. And when the, this is what the real test is. The real test of whether you're rooted in reality or not is when the storm comes. And it's the storm that tests how deep your roots really go. Jesus tells a parable about this, doesn't he? About the seed being sown and it growing up. And he says, it's like when people receive the word with joy. But then when troubles come, when trials come, they fall away. They lose their faith. They have no root. And this is what Paul's worried about. So he says in verse 5, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid in some way that the tempter might have tempted you and that our efforts might have been useless. He was worried that his efforts of sowing the seed of the gospel, which they received, he was told, he told us with deep conviction, he was worried that there might have been no root and that these sufferings, this storm, might have shown that to be the case. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You know, brothers, that our visit to you is not a failure. Now here he's saying he's worried that our efforts might have been useless. Why was his visit not a failure? He says in the end of chapter 1, it's because of this. He says, our visit was not a failure because they, you turned to God to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And now he's worried that because of these sufferings, they might have turned back to, um, turned back to the idols again. 
He's worried that they might not have been rooted enough in reality and they've turned back to idols again. Because you see, in a sense, suffering doesn't prove whether or not you've got faith. Suffering doesn't prove whether or not you've got faith. It tests what your faith is in. It tests, it tests where your life is kind of rooted. Because the fact is, we've all got roots in um, something, in things kind of other than God. Lots of us were quite skeptical about this before we became a Christian. We thought maybe that we were kind of, we were able to live without faith, we were able to live kind of self-sufficient, independent lives. But then when you suffer, you always realize that's not the case. You think you don't have faith, but when everything falls apart, you realize just what it is you are basing your life on and where your roots are. That's what you've got your faith in. If it's your career and your career flops, sure, it's always painful. But if that's what you're basing your life on, it destroys you. You say, my life's meaningless. What have I to do now? That's where your roots were. Or if maybe your child starts to grow up and rebel and starts to um, kind of resent you, of course, that hurts everyone. But if that child was kind of everything to you, when that happens, it destroys you. That's where your roots were. Or if you fail at something, or you embarrass yourself, and everything in your life is uprooted, that's your idol. That's what you had your faith in. And as a Christian, we, we all have roots and stuff other than God. And so there's a sense in which we need these storms to show us where these roots are. We need these storms to kind of shake us a bit and help us to see where we're not kind of grounded in God. You can't discover this when you're on holiday. When you're on holiday, you think, yeah, I trust in God. He's number one in my life. But when troubles come, that's when you start to realize, when you feel the ground start to move beneath your feet and you realize that, that, that kind of that these things were everything to you and the ground is starting to move. And when you realize this, there's two ways you can respond. There's two ways you can respond. You can say, God, please help me. Please help me trust in you. Help me to root my life in you. Help me to base my life on your love, which I know is the rock, which I know will never move, which I know can never take me. That's one way to respond. What you're doing there is you've started talking to yourself again. Why are you downcasting my soul? Put your hope in God. This is kind of standing firm, this kind of continual turning from idols to the living God. This turning from kind of lies to truth, turning from sinking sand to solid ground. Or you can say, God, please help me sort this out. Please make it stop. I can't deal with this. And when nothing changes, what happens is you get angry and you get resentful. And you say, I prayed, but you didn't do anything. What does this mean? It means that your life, you have not turned from idols. That your life is still built on something other than God's love. And this is why you're angry, because this thing, this, your career, your, your child, this is non-negotiable. And if God doesn't serve this agenda as well, then what good's God? You see, God's not your God. This is your God. 
This is the ground on which your life is built. And if God doesn't help you maintain this ground, then you're out of here. You're not interested. And so when Paul hears from Timothy that he is what he says, six, uh, verse 6, Timothy has now just come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and your love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. He's delighted because he knows they're grounded in God. They're not bitter. They're not angry. They don't resent Paul for giving him this message. Even with all the trouble it's brought, they love him. They have pleasant, fond memories of him. And so Paul is over the moon. They're full of love and warmth. And so he knows they're standing firm. They've not been unsettled. They're living in the reality of the love of God. And therefore, they're overflowing with love. And that's the way Paul is in himself, isn't it? Let's look again just at the language of the letter. This is the last point. Paul, in this letter, is overflowing with love. And Paul himself is in a storm. He says... He says, um, therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, Paul's having a really hard time as well. He says, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live. What an amazing verse. For now we really live. Now we can kind of breathe again. Now, we, now, now everything is okay because you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and make up what's lacking in your faith. Paul's in a storm and yet he's not self-absorbed, he's not bitter. He's, not, he's, he's, he's focused entirely on them and their good because he loves them. And he's not kind of using them. He's not kind of using them to make himself feel better. He's absolutely concerned about their good and how they're doing. He's most happiest when he's praying for them. It's a really beautiful picture, actually. And the question is, how, how do we live a life like that? How do we become like that? So that even in the storms of life, even when everything's going wrong, we can be other-centered, we can love in that way. Well, again, it's all about our roots. It's all about our roots. Because when Paul finds that they're still rooted in God, he is wildly optimistic about their prospects. This is just faith. This is just them saying, I trust you, God. And yet for Paul, that means the future is very bright indeed. It's just a matter of time until blossom starts to appear and fruit starts to fall, appear in their branches. Because you see, this love that Paul has and demonstrates and this love that he's starting to see emerge in this community doesn't come from them. It doesn't kind of is not something they've worked at or made themselves. It's something that comes from God. It's something they get because they're rooted in God's love. Why, why is faith such a big deal in the New Testament? Why not love? Why not hope or joy? Why is faith so fundamentally important? The Puritans used to say it's because it's a receiving grace. It's a receiving grace. It's the only receiving grace. When someone says they love you, the way you receive that love is by putting your faith in them. 
the way you enjoy that love, the way you benefit from what they can give you is by putting your faith in them, by making yourself vulnerable, by making yourself open and ready to receive. It's a root. It's what roots you in God's love. It's what allows you to kind of take up the sap and have the, the love blossom in the branches. It's a receiving grace. I just want to tell you two things to finish. First of all, Paul is concerned one, in, about one thing in particular, that in verse um, 5 he says, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. The tempter is the devil, and Paul takes this very seriously, and he says that the greatest danger to us receiving God's love, to us kind of having our roots tapped into the love of God, is the temptation of Satan. And this temptation is really, it just boils down to one thing, one kind of lie that basically lies at the bottom of everything. We're reading this lovely book called the Storybook Bible, and it's got this account of the fall, which is beautiful. It talks about how at the fall, when, when God, man turned away from God, it was because Satan lied, the snake lied, and the lie was this. It says this lie that whispers into every single human heart is this. God doesn't love you. God doesn't really love you. And so Satan will point to your sufferings and your hard times, and he'll say, see, God, God doesn't really love you. He doesn't understand what you're going through. You're on your own in this. You can't trust God anymore. You can't trust his love. You should, you should probably spread your feet. Try and, try and find something else to base your life on. You can't base it on God's love. And then maybe you do that and you turn away from God and you start basing your life on something else. And then Satan pounces on you and says, oh, well, that's it. That's blown it now. There's no way you can go back and receive God's love once again. Sure, he says he forgives you, but come on, it's getting a bit ridiculous now. You've, you've done this one too many times now, surely. You can't rely on God's love. No, faith is holding on to this reality. God is love. God loves me. And you do that most of all by looking at the cross. When you take communion, what you're doing is you're clinging on to this love of God. Luther used to talk about how the most important words in the communion supper were these words, for you, for you. You don't just sit there and watch the bread being broken on the table and saying, Jesus died, he was crucified, we do this in remembrance of him. No, we say this, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, for you. And so as the bread goes round, you put your hand out, and you take it, and you eat it, and you say, there. See, it's for me. This love is for me. And you feed on it, and it nourishes you. And as you do that, as you do that, not just during communion, but every day of your life. I remember when Anya was a baby, and really a really young baby, um, and you had to feed her at lots of times in the night. I used to try and kind of stuff as much milk in her as possible to get her to kind of sleep through the night. But the thing was, her stomach was only so big, and so she had to keep on being topped up through the night. That's, that's like us. That's what we need. And so that's why we read the Bible each day, is we, we think to ourselves, I need to be reminded again of God's love for me. I remember once talking to an old lady 
um, at church while I was a student, and I knew I could tell she was a godly person, and yet she said to me, John, I'm so self-centered and sinful and forgetful. You know, I have to read the Bible every day, otherwise I just forget it. She was amazed at herself by her forgetfulness. That's why we read the Bible, to remind ourselves of God's love, to feed on this. And as we do this, as we get, allow our roots to go really deep into this reality, uh, this reality that alone, apart from anything else, will hold us firm in the storm, as we do that, beautiful fruit will start to appear on our branches and will start to look like the pool we see in this passage. So, how are you doing? How are you doing? Shall we pray? Father God, we want to be people who are rooted in you alone, be standing on you because everywhere else is sinking sand. Thank you, Lord, that your love, your goodness is our sole sufficient ground upon which we can base our lives. Lord, I thank you for faith. Thank you that faith is a receiving grace. Thank you that it's not really a virtue at all. It's simply holding on to you with all our might, holding on to your love. Lord, we pray that this faith would flourish in us, that we would be people deeply rooted in the reality of your love, that we would cling to you in the storms, and that we would start displaying this fruit that Paul was so optimistic about for the Thessalonians. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.